What is the Gen AI opportunity in tax? Here are some thoughts from EY and Real-Time Insights. Tax has always been an area of heavy data and heavy rules. Generative AI opens up an opportunity for tax professionals to use natural language that they're comfortable using to query the data, to ask different questions, and provide new business insights. Learn more at ey.com. Hey there, it's Tracy Alloway. And Jill Weisenthal. We are the co-hosts of the Odd Lots podcast, and we want to tell you about a new podcast and video series you are not going to want to miss. The Deal, co-hosted by Yankees legend Alex Rodriguez. Every week, A-Rod and Bloomberg reporter Jason Kelly speak with big-time athletes, entertainers, and executives. Like Maria Sharapova, Michael Strahan, Derek Jeter, and more. The Deal takes you behind the scenes into the world of sports, media, and entertainment. And dives into the wins, losses, and lessons learned along the way. From Bloomberg Podcasts and Bloomberg Originals, you can listen to The Deal on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. You can also watch it on Bloomberg Television and Bloomberg Originals on YouTube. Welcome to another episode of the Odd Lots Podcast. I'm Tracy Alloway. And I'm Joe Weisenthal. Joe, can you remember the last time we had Brad Setzer on? <laughs> it's been too long. I don't know the exact time. I think we had him on once since the pandemic, but obviously he did his stint at the administration, so he sort of like disappeared from public view for a while. And it's just like, it's been too long without a Brad Setzer episode. Well, you are absolutely right that it has been too long. Uh, But the last time we had him on the show was, it was actually April 2020. So it's sort of firmly in the depths. Like right then. Yeah, right at the the start of um, the pandemic economic experience. So that's over three years ago now. I know. And and a lot has happened since then. (laughs) Um, (laughs) As you mentioned, he did leave the Council on Foreign Relations CFR to uh, join the Biden administration as a trade representative. He's since come back, which means we get to enjoy his blog posts again, his tweeting, but also setting aside Brad's personal experience over the past three years, there's just a lot that's happened with global trade, with the economy. Economy. And the weird thing is, a lot's happened, but a lot has kind of stayed the same as well. Well, so it's really well put because I think that, you know, one of the expectations uh, during probably the last time we talked in April 2020 or middle of 2020, was like everyone was like, oh, nearshoring or, mm-hmm. uh, you know, great separation. or And I don't think that really is the story. So on some level, I don't, you know, I do think maybe at the margins, like, you know, we're still trading a lot with China, right? For all of the yeah. talk, we're still trading a lot with China. Our part, but it does feel like on the other hand, big things are changing with the nature of Chinese exports, the auto industry. And then all of these things with like, EVs and the Inflation Reduction Act and the CHIPS Act. So big things are happening on the global trade level, tensions between the U.S. and the EU. Big things are happening on the global trade level, even if some of the immediate predictions didn't exactly like unfold yet how people thought back then. Yeah. I mean, the U.S. is still running a current account deficit. China is still running a current account surplus, but things are sort of changing within those broad Mm -hmm. categories. So 
we need to check in with Brad. We need to get his take on stuff that has changed or hasn't changed over the past three years in the global economy, in global trade, in the balance of payments. And I'm very pleased to say that he's going to join us now. Uh, Brad Setzer, Senior Fellow at the Council on Foreign Relations. It's so good to have you back on the show. Well, uh, thanks for bringing me back. Setting aside uh, some of the, the the job change that you had, what's been your impression of the past three years? <laughs> like broad stroke, what has happened? Where to begin? I mean, the the world economy did didn't completely come to a halt in the first few months of the pandemic, but it did sort of stall uh, intentionally. Enormous stimulus packages were pa- or passed. Uh, uh, there was a real effort to protect people's income during the pandemic-induced slowdown. And then I think, you know, a series of shocks uh, have unfolded after that. Um, uh, I don't think when the pandemic initially struck, people realized there was going to be this enormous shift in the composition of demand towards mm. goods and away from services, uh, which really was quite uh, enormous. And it it gummed up uh, global trade routes for a while. There was just more demand for goods than there was capacity, uh, even in places where we thought there was tons of capacity. Um, and then you have well, the shocks from Russia's invasion on oil markets, the closing of the pipelines to Europe. Uh, so, you know, there, there have been enormous shifts. Uh, but, you know, as you, as you alluded to, the basic, some of the basic patterns of the global economy didn't uh, immediately change or in some cases they reasserted themselves more strongly. So, you know, China's trade surplus is way bigger than it was before the pandemic. Mm. The U.S. trade deficit is uh, slightly bigger. Um, some of the uh, trajectories that were probably emerging even before the pandemic, you know, China, China is no longer just a, a location of final assembly. China produces a lot of key intermediate goods. Mm. It now produces a lot of capital goods. It's now producing and exporting a ton of electric vehicles. I think some of those trends were quite clear before the pandemic. They're now more apparent. Um, and it's also fair to say that uh, while, while it hasn't changed global trade, there is a new concern uh, about weaponizing supply chains that's leading to uh, policy shifts that, you know, maybe or maybe won't have a big future impact. So why don't, you know, let's talk about China or the U.S.-China trade relationship. You know, people have talked about decoupling, but it doesn't really seem like that's happened or it's happening. But there is this impulse, maybe partly for national security reasons, maybe par- partly for just competitive reasons, other, you know, to change the nature of the relationship. How is it different, you know, here in May 2023 versus, say, if we had been talking about this Ch- U.S.-China relationship in May 2019? Well, in May 2019, we would have been debating whether Trump was going to raise tariffs or not raise tariffs. Uh, true. Uh, it would have been at the, <laughs> the, the, the fight over tariffs would have been at its peak. I mean, I think the biggest uh, difference now is we've largely, it's not like the tariffs have gone away, uh, but the right. tariffs ha- didn't drive as big a shift in trade as some expected. Um, and uh, the tools that are being employed to try to change the structure of the relationship have evolved. So, uh, you know, the Inflation Reduction Act uh, introduced a set of uh, requirements for eligibility for uh, electric vehicle subsidies that have an impact on 
continued use of the Chinese battery critical mineral supply chain, none of that would have been on anyone's radar screens back in 2019. Right. You know, EVs weren't that big. Uh, the notion that all critical materials for batteries were processed in China wasn't part of common knowledge. Uh, Joe Manchin had not determined that that was a future national security threat for the United States. Uh, the, you know, the, probably in 2019, it wasn't widely recognized that Intel was falling behind the leading edge of uh, semiconductor manufacturing technology and the vulnerabilities that were associated with reliance on TSMC weren't kind of front and center. Right. Uh, now, I think if you go to ask anyone at the NSC, you know, what what, what would happen if there were a, a negative escalation around the Taiwan Straits, they, their, their thoughts would go quite quickly to what happens to semiconductor supplies, where that would not have been as prominent in people's thinking in 2019. But look, the other thing, I, I, I keep coming back to this, like China – is exporting a trillion dollars more than it was before the pandemic. Mm. It's uh, exporting a trillion dollars more than it did when Trump started his trade war. A whole bunch of large, uh, you know, kind of policy measures that were designed to uh, make trade less attractive didn't have the effect of making China less dependent on trade. Uh, other thing, other forces uh, mm. had a bigger impact. The shift towards global demand for goods. The the fact that you know the Chinese yuan is still basically where it was. Uh, it depends on what you want to do, but you know it hasn't had a lot of strength since 2014. Uh, the the evolution of the competitive of, of a competitive auto industry in China. All these things in the end mattered more. The whether we were tariffed one third, two thirds, or all of our trade with China, which was the debate back in 2018. You know, you mentioned the idea that China is still very much dependent on trade. And you see that even um, internally from a policy perspective. Uh, we know, for instance, uh, the Chinese economy has has been a little weaker uh, than it has been historically recently. Um, they've been experiencing a much lower level of inflation than a lot of other places in the world. And as part of the policy response, China seems to be trying to boost supply side support and capacity, which will inevitably just feed into an even bigger trade surplus, despite the stated ambition of trying to build up domestic demand, shift more to a services-led economy. Why does that transition seem to be so difficult? And why does it hmm. feel like China often falls back on supply-side support policies? Well, I, I, at this point, I think uh, my operating hypothesis is that President Xi uh, doesn't really believe in providing direct support to households. Hmm. Um, that would be the simplest, most straightforward explanation for why China, in the face of shocks that seem to call for direct support for households, has, has not done so. Um, the other measure, and people often talk about difficult structural reforms, and usually they mean laying people off or cutting back on subsidies. Uh, but in China, it strangely seems to be a very difficult structural reform to change uh, a very regressive system of taxation, uh, move away from very hefty contributions organized through uh, uh, the payroll system with a big lump sum when you enter the formal labor force so that your your marginal tax rate uh, for low-income formal work is incredibly high. 
uh, and to shift to a different system of, of tax and a system that uh, provides a better balance of revenues between the center and the provinces and that uh, allows more policy support for consumption. Um, you know, demand in China was generated through investment. And there's a, there's a sense in China um, that handing checks to consumers uh, doesn't generate any productive activity. Mm. Uh, it doesn't generate any any assets. It doesn't build anything. Uh, whereas, you know, hmm. authorizing lending to through the state banks to support uh, construction of a lot of, of uh, new semiconductor or manufacturing facilities, you're obviously investing, you're obviously building things. And uh, even if there's maybe overinvestment, uh, you end up with assets. Whereas what do you end up when you write a check to consumers other than the debt? So there's uh, there's been a bit of reluctance, I would say, to hmm. to borrow to support household consumption. There hasn't been a reluctance to borrow to support infrastructure or other investment. And so what China tends to do when the economy uh, slows, and sometimes it slows because everyone, because Chinese policymakers worry that the debt growth has been too fast and that there's pockets of excess and. Uh, some people are borrowing that won't be able to pay uh, the money back, and they they clamp down, and then they clamp down too hard, and then uh, there's there's pressure to restart the investment engine. Um, and then, frankly, over the past couple of years, uh, there was sort of a complementarity uh, between the U.S. and European policy response to the pandemic, which emphasized supporting demand, supporting household income. Uh, using the government's balance sheet to insulate households from the impact of the shock. To some degree in the process, insulating firms, but a great deal of emphasis on protecting households. And then China, which emphasized uh, uh, maintaining its productive capacity and didn't provide much direct household income support. And you know, China's gotten a quite substantial boost to growth uh, over the past three or four years from net exports. So that's to me like the the irony. We talk about deglobalization when on most measures, China's economy actually reglobalized. Uh, the political debate around trade overwhelmed uh, the discourse, uh, but in a quantitative sense, China, exports as a share of GDP have gone up in China. China's getting as much of a contribution from net exports over the past four years as it got during the China shock. Um, uh, manufacturing, China's manufacturing surplus is back close to 10% of China's GDP after it dipped a bit. So there's just all sorts of measures that suggest China, uh, the, the overall policy response to the pandemic made the world more, not less dependent on Chinese manufacturing. But there clearly is a little bit of a reaction to that, a sense of vulnerability and a policy uh, effort in the U.S., increasingly in Europe, to make sure that that uh, manufacturing dependence isn't permanent and doesn't extend to too many strategic mm. products. How will generative AI impact the way financial services firms work? Here are some thoughts from EY and real-time business. At an enterprise level, how will it impact the way we work? Just like how internet changed all our lives, 
this technology has the potential to have a step change in how we fundamentally operate. But, uh, let me give you a few examples of what some of the use cases our clients are exploring. We are seeing our clients explore a few knowledge management use cases. For example, in, in case of wealth and asset management, providing their financial advisors with right information so that they can serve their clients better. Similarly, a claims agent in insurance or a contact center representative in case of banking and capital markets. The, the theme that we are seeing is where the machine comes in and provides contextual insights to enable the humans make better decisions, better actions in a faster manner. Learn more at ey.com. Hey there, it's Tracy Alloway. And Joe Weisenthal. We are the co-hosts of the Odd Lots podcast, and we want to tell you about a new podcast and video series you are not going to want to miss. The Deal, co-hosted by Yankees legend Alex Rodriguez. Every week, A-Rod and Bloomberg reporter Jason Kelly speak with big-time athletes, entertainers, and executives. Like Maria Sharapova, Michael Strahan, Derek Jeter, and more. The Deal takes you behind the scenes into the world of sports, media, and entertainment. And dives into the wins, losses, and lessons learned along the way. From Bloomberg Podcasts and Bloomberg Originals, you can listen to The Deal on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. You can also watch it on Bloomberg Television and Bloomberg Originals on YouTube. I don't know if there's like a really elegant way to ask this question. How freaked out are they in Europe? <laughs> by I don't even think you tried, Joe. No, I was like, well, I just like, how is it on my mind? Uh, by what the power of the Chinese export, auto export. Because, I mean, I feel like there was this sort of view that, well, like they were cheap cars. They weren't really like global quality. They certainly weren't going to be like global brands and the sort of perception that China wouldn't create global brands. And my impression is that at least at the margins and maybe more than at the margins, uh, Chinese uh, EVs are increasingly of global quality and maybe uh, some brand awareness, particularly in Europe. And when you sort of factor in the, you know, lower production costs and the skill that the Chinese uh, manufacturers have in batteries, stuff like that, like how big of a threat is this to some of the uh, big uh, industrial giants of Europe and the sort of business model of Europe? Well, strangely enough, uh, at a political level, the Europeans freaked out about the Inflation Reduction Act. Yeah, I was, freak I, out I was wondering China. if I should go th- like which direction. I was going to – whether I should ask about the U.S. policy response or the Chinese cars. But anyway, keep going. You know, I mean like I, I, in some sense I think the U.S. You know, and you know, the administration, which I was a part of, had, had – was very conscious uh, that the transition to electric vehicles should not be a transition to Chinese-made electric vehicles. Mm. Uh, very conscious of the fact that if you're going to close down uh, factories making internal combustion engines, you wanted there to be new factories being built in the United States to make batteries, to make the components of an electric car. And I think you know the U.S. had, in a sense, anticipated that uh, there could potentially be a shock and move more proactively to manage it. Now, in the process, you introduced some measures that are debatable in their WTO consistency, uh, subsidies that uh, didn't extend to all of America's friends because of the way the Inflation Reduction Act was designed. And Europe really did display a lot of a surprise at how the Inflation Reduction Act was constructed and uh, a lot of concern about how it was going to deindustrialize Europe. The irony to me is that uh, there's, there's almost no possibility any of the big SUVs 
or electric SUVs that U.S. manufacturers or others who are planning to make in the U.S. are going to invade the European market. They're not they're, they're designed for the U.S. market. Mm-hmm. They're not designed for export. And while the, the Europeans were complaining about the formal protection in the uh, Inflation Reduction Act, they had ignored the informal protection that China had extended to its electric vehicle industry that had sort of nur- successfully nurtured an infant industry, created a very successful supply chain for uh, up and down the electric vehicle uh, process, you know, batteries to drivetrains, et cetera, uh, and had suddenly become a big, big exporter. The the Chinese did wall off their market. No, no imported vehicle ever qualified for China's inf- uh, electric vehicle subsidies, uh, but they didn't do it with by writing uh, that into the law. They did it by setting up a list, and no import happened to qualify. Uh, and so there has been a discrepancy, I would say, between how Europe formally has responded to the uh, electric vehicle shock coming from China, largely by complaining about U.S. policies. Uh, that said, there is undoubtedly uh, a shift underway in Europe. And the fact that VW is losing market share in China has not escaped their attention uh, and the, the, the increase in imports is quite significant, uh, and it is generating pressure on the European side to, to replicate some aspects of U.S. policy. But that, the Europeans find the, uh, China a bit harder to handle because the measures that would insulate the European market from a wave of Chinese exports uh, are likely a little bit WTO inconsistent. Hmm. And the uh, European complaint about the U.S. is that we're WTO inconsistent. So they've, they've, they've sort of let formalism uh, overwhelm uh, pragmatism. Maybe everyone can just agree to be WTO adjacent. Um, so <laughs> that would be somewhat helpful for solving a bunch of trade disputes, but set that aside. So since we're, we're the theme of this discussion is sort of um, the more things change, the more they stay the same, uh, I thought maybe we could talk a little bit about China debt issues. Um, And specifically, in in recent months, there's been more attention paid to the local Chinese debt, so stuff issued by municipalities, basically. And these are headlines that I can remember, you know, from 10 or 15 years ago, this idea of a China local debt time bomb. Um, The numbers have changed. So I've, I've seen $23 trillion worth mentioned relatively recently. But the overall thesis is the same, this idea that eventually these local authorities aren't going to be able to sell bonds or they're going to have to default on their debt. Um, And the assumption always seems to be that the Chinese central government is going to step in and backstop them. So I I guess my question is, is this something worth paying attention to? (laughs) Why does this matter? Well, it's it's certainly something worth paying attention to. You know, China's central government has almost no debt by global standards. Uh, latest, I think, numbers are about 25% of GDP. You know, U.S. and France are more like 100. Uh, but uh, the Chinese provinces, municipalities, localities uh, have a very uh, large pool of debt, direct debt. They have more direct debt, formally recognized debt than the central government. Um, and then the, the local government financing vehicles, which are not 
They're, they're supported by local governments. They're, they're local government adjacent, so to speak. Uh, they have even more. Uh, so, you know, you sum those up and you get numbers of total debt about of, above about 100% of GDP. That's not a, a such a high level that it implies, uh, in my view, that China is uh, forced to do nothing except consolidate. Uh, China saves a lot. It can mobilize a lot of money through its financial system uh, to support uh, the government activity at various levels. But the distribution of debt is strange. Uh, it is it is strange that China has so little debt at the central government and so much debt at the local government. Mm. The revenue raising capacity is much higher at the central government level. Uh, it's much weaker at the local government level. And a lot of the shocks that have hit China over the past uh, several years have been shocks to local governments. Um, COVID, uh, I mean, I was sort of surprised to read this, that uh, the central government didn't uh, – didn't uh, provide large checks to local governments to cover the cost of implementing zero COVID. Mm. So a lot of that was born out of out of budgets. Uh, infrastructure financing and expansion is done through local governments and local government vehicles. Uh, but local governments also get a lot of money from land sales, and land sale revenue has been hit by the the turn in China's property market. So so the weaker local governments are really in uh, a bit of a bind. They have limited capacity to collect revenue. Some key revenue sources have been falling. They don't get as much help from the center as probably is needed to cover their legacy debts. And it's just always harder to service debts when your economy starts slowing, even if overall interest rates are, are pretty low. And for some, it's going to be, it's hard to refinance in the market. So you end up, rather than having defaults, you have uh, informal negotiations to stretch out payment. But it is a problem. It's, you know, the investment engine of China's economy maybe had three sources, three or four sources. One is sort of call it private investment to meet uh, global demand for exports. One is sort of government directed investment uh, in key sectors aimed at import substitution. So building a Chinese aircraft, expanding China's indigenous semiconductor manufacturing capacity, so forth and so on. But the biggest ones were building real estate for folks in China um, and building out China's infrastructure. Uh, and both the real estate and the infrastructure engines are, are now facing strain. And if you take away those engines, uh, China's economy looks disequilibrated. It looks, uh, it looks weak. I want to pivot to something random. One of the reasons I like talking to Brad is I feel like I can throw things out about anywhere in the world, and he'll probably have some <laughs> understanding of what's going on. I want to pivot to something that I thought uh, that was in the news recently that just popped into my head, and I want to get your take on it. What is the macroeconomic significance of Saudi Arabia offering Lionel Messi $400 million <laughs> a year to play uh, soccer there? And what is a... You know, at a time of like booming EVs, I would not necessarily think this like oil giant has all this money to splash around on like a competing golf tour to the PGA <laughs> and uh, offering someone half a billion dollars a year to play uh, some soccer games. What is going on there and how big of a force is like this money emanating out of uh, uh, the Saudi Arabia? Uh, Saudi Arabia? State-sponsored <laughs> yeah. soccer. Yeah. I didn't didn't uh, Saudi Arabia also give a contract to Ronaldo? So uh, Oh, that's probably right. Yeah. So, uh, you the know, Ronaldo, Ronaldo Messi stars. in the desert or yeah. something like that. Yeah. 
Um, look, I think what it actually means is that Saudi Arabia's current account surplus isn't going to last much longer. Mm. Um, uh, you know, oil prices have adjusted uh, down, uh, and oil in the seventies or eighties now, in my calculations, just covers Saudi import bill and. Expensive soccer players are the kind of luxury, kind of a luxury good import, and they're the kind of luxury wow. good import that uh, quickly reduces your current account surplus. Uh, so I think Saudi Arabia is heading towards, you know, at current oil prices, and uh, if you want to build cities in the desert, uh, yeah, sponsor global golf tours and hire the best soccer players to come play in the desert. So they probably need air conditioned stadiums. Um, you're right. you're going to run a, a a current account deficit if oil doesn't uh, rebound back up. The Saudis got $150 billion windfall last year, though, from, from their oil exports. The Gulf countries were like, uh, generally got about a $300 billion windfall. They had been relatively conservative, I would say, over the past 10 years. I, I kept expecting uh, some of the splashy uh, policy shifts, the debt cities, uh, all the other MBS. Uh, yeah. Uh, investments to really change the macro numbers. And it didn't happen until the last two quarters. But I think you've really seen a big increase in uh, Saudi spending. So uh, Saudi Arabia structurally is either going to be drawing on its accumulated savings, which it has a lot, or it needs somehow to orchestrate higher oil prices. So just on this note, you wrote a piece. I I can't remember when exactly um, you did it, but it might have been one of the first ones – that you wrote after you returned to CFR, but you made the point that most of these surplus countries in the world nowadays seem to be countries that may not necessarily be that friendly um, to the U.S. or maybe attitudes are Mm. shifting. So places like China, um, Saudi Arabia, uh, Russia would be an obvious one. What does that mean for global trade as geopolitics kind of seeps in and adds presumably some complexity to, um, you know, deficit surplus relationships? Uh, well, I, I did probably probably was a conscious choice to make that one of my uh, first <laughs> blog <laughs> blog posts because I did think it was a, a something worth noting and something that hadn't been noticed. Um, you know, last year oil prices shot up. Uh, and this Chinese current account surplus also increased. Uh, and the European, Japanese, Korean current account surplus either shrank in the case of, uh, of Japan, uh, swung briefly into deficit for, for Korea, or really swung into deficit for Europe. So we were in a, in a unique period when despite all the talk about fragmentation and limiting trade but, and financial flows to flows within uh, blocks who uh, share values, who share similar political systems, uh, all the big autocracies around the world, China, Saudi Arabia, Russia, the uh, GCC monarchies. And, you know, the GCC is a bit separate because they're kind of militarily allied with the U.S. So they're, But they're kind of, at least the Saudi case, they're also a little scared of some U.S. sanctions because some you know, MBS has a, has a checkered history, let's say. And the, clearly the political systems differ, even if there's a military alliance. So you have a world where the autocracies had surpluses. The big deficits were in the U.S., uh, U.K., and India, democracies. And we were talking about fragmentation. There was clearly a limit to how much fragmentation is possible when all the autocracies are running surpluses with all the democracies. There has to be – there is a trade flow implied – 
by the the deficit, and there is a financial flow that is also implied. Mm. So this would um, be like FX reserves and things like that. Well, it wasn't FX reserves, so that's the mm. other interesting thing is that uh, you know Russia literally could not accumulate assets ah, in its reserves. Yeah. The Saudis had decided they had plenty of reserves and were channeling money into private equity funds through their sovereign wealth fund, building up deposits, maybe getting ready to make sure that they had so much money in the bank they could pay Messi and Ronaldo in cash. And the Chinese uh, have a longstanding, now for 10 years, close to 10 years, policy of, of more or less not adding to their formal reserves. And instead, when uh, there's appreciation pressure, that pressure shows up in a buildup of assets in the state banking system. Uh, and then when there's depreciation pressure, exporters just seem to hoard dollars. So unlike in the past when you had this big buildup of foreign assets in autocracies and you would see it in their reserves and you could track the flow back to the U.S. and you know people would say, oh, my God, China's buying up the U.S. Treasury market. We had implicit in this uh, constellation of surpluses and deficits – was a big flow from China, Saudi Arabia, Russia, and the other GCC countries to the U.S. and the U.K. I'm going to leave India out because we know India financed its current account deficit last year by selling reserves. But you didn't see that in the buildup of reserves or a buildup in their holdings of treasuries. Uh, so it was sort of a hidden financial flow that you can infer from the global balance of payments. So I, I think it is interesting in a lot of ways. Uh, one is that it just there are so many things that happened over the past several years in the global economy that don't easily fit into a narrative of fragmentation into rival hmm. blocks that don't easily fit into a deglobalization narrative that don't fit into a de-dollarization narrative uh, and so I, this was an attempt to highlight the limits of trying to think about the world in those terms hmm. um, but it was also just uh, an attempt to say look uh, there's a set of financial flows that have to be occurring through parts of the global economy that bring China's surplus to the U.S. and the U.K. without a buildup of reserves, without a formal, without obvious purchases of treasuries. And we need to do a better job of trying to understand that. But I also, look, there's a risk. And I think the risk is that uh, we have a global economy which has – quite large financial and trade interconnections between the different blocks. Uh, and there isn't a political consensus on either part of the block that they want to maintain that level of interconnection. But it is costly to move away. So there's a tension between the world as it is and the world as some would like it to be. Financial services firms consider privacy in adopting Gen AI. Here are some thoughts from EY. And compared to other sectors, financial services is absolutely in a great place to manage the governance of AI, leveraging what they have. So operational risk management and the rigor that is around that is certainly how privacy has been built within the front line of most financial services organizations. That operational risk management rigor, as we know, requires assessment for new products, which is where privacy also has made certain it's part of that risk assessment. But it also requires a robust data governance framework and a lot of control at the data lifecycle management. So if we take those two 
aspects. We take the risk management aspect of new product management, the risk management aspect of data. We really have a nice layer to build upon, and privacy, of course, is already integrated into that. Learn more at ey.com. Hey there, it's Tracy Alloway. And Jill Weisenthal. We are the co-hosts of the Odd Lots podcast, and we want to tell you about a new podcast and video series you are not going to want to miss. The Deal, co-hosted by Yankees legend Alex Rodriguez. Every week, A-Rod and Bloomberg reporter Jason Kelly speak with big-time athletes, entertainers, and executives. Like Maria Sharapova, Michael Strahan, Derek Jeter, and more. The Deal takes you behind the scenes into the world of sports, media, and entertainment. And dives into the wins, losses, and lessons learned along the way. From Bloomberg Podcasts and Bloomberg Originals, you can listen to The Deal on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. You can also watch it on Bloomberg Television and Bloomberg Originals on YouTube. You know, I want to go back actually to the U.S.-Europe tension, but in terms of like some of these things that have changed, you know, this may this might sound sound like sort of like a winter t- 2022 question, so maybe a little late, uh, but it may, and maybe it made sense when electricity prices in Europe were higher. But obviously, like there's this still, I think, a sort of big long-term question mark about energy security in Europe, especially given the you know the obvious questions about the Russia relationship. And then at the same time, the U.S. spent a lot of us, you know, several years like building up export capacity and we're like swimming in a or floating in natural gas, maybe is the way to put it. How meaningful is this, that there's tons of cheap energy in the U.S.? And is this sort of like going to be a source of marginal investment decisions to go towards the U.S. out of Europe, this sort of further threat to the uh, European industrial economy that can move to the U.S. and get a lot of cheap energy, and there's no threat of it being cut off. It is a it is a modest challenge mm. to the uh, parts of of European industry. It's it's the most significantly it's a challenge to the German chemical industry, uh, and there's certain other energy intensive parts of the uh, European economy that that broadly speaking don't make sense if you have to pay. Uh, really high cost to import natural gas. It makes more sense to move the industry closer to cheap sources of gas. Uh, so there are there's a there's a part of particularly German, but more broadly uh, European industry that was built up around uh, you know uh, a steady supply of Russian pipeline gas at a relatively low cost. And if that goes away. Uh, you know, in the short run, you can keep the plants running by importing expensive LNG. Uh, in the long run, you probably want to uh, reallocate uh, production of the most energy-intensive chemicals mm. uh, towards the U.S. Aluminum is another one. You know, but like, there's a huge difference between Norwegian aluminum made with trapped hydro mm. and some of the other aluminum factories, which are you know run off either gas or coal. Um, and the U.S. ain't ain't actually a cheap place for producing aluminum either, for different reasons. But uh, you know, I think there's there there is a threat there. Uh, there's a challenge to European industry coming from the auto industry, which isn't as energy intensive, uh, coming from uh, China. Uh, there's a challenge from Europe's very ambitious climate goals, and right. how do you produce steel in a way that doesn't use coal? It's 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 a challenge. Uh, but I think to Europe's credit, uh, Europe probably. Uh, more than the U.S. has thought seriously about all the changes to Europe's energy system that would needed to that would eventually be needed to decarbonize the economy. 
Um, it's, it's more of a planning and more done through the electricity companies. But I think the, you know, in the U.S., because we have cheap gas, there, there's just a tendency to think the energy, energy security and future climate commitments are, can met, be met in the short run by burning gas and you know, not burning coal. Uh, whereas in Europe, you have to, th there is a much stronger effort to think 20 years ahead and think of an energy system that really doesn't rely uh, on imported fossil fuels, including LNG. So, but it, it is, it is a challenge. It is a threat. And, uh, you know, the fact that Europe was paying like two to three times the energy equivalent, uh, per barrel of oil for imported gas just tells you how extreme, uh, the shock was. Uh, you know, you touched on this al already a little bit, but one of the things that has happened recently is there does seem to be uh, growing attention paid to the idea of de-dollarization. And to some extent, these conversations have been going on for a, a long time. This is also in the more things change, the more they stay the same category. People have been talking about usurping the dollar's role in the global financial system um, for decades now. But I'm curious how seriously, um, if at all, you are taking um, some of those concerns at the moment. Well, I guess I, I like pointing out uh Ironies, and to me, the irony is we're uh, debating de-dollarization when the best evidence is of de-euroization. <laughs> um, and the de-euroized trade was trade that Europe sanctioned. Uh, Europe made it more or less impossible—not completely impossible—but narrowed the channels to use euros for to pay uh, for trade between China and, and and Europe. Russia moved away from the dollar to settle trade with China after the. Uh, 1415 sanctions in Crimea. They thought it would be safer to tr denominate trade in euros. Uh, and then this last round of sanctions, uh, hmm. uh, you know, essentially showed Russia uh, that putting your reserves in euros and putting denominating your trade with China in euros didn't offer significantly more protection than doing the same thing in dollars. So to me, it is a it isn't really a de-dollarization. Uh, question. It should be a, uh, a move away from using G7 currencies uh, question, uh, because the easy alternative for people who are worried about U.S. sanctions used to be the euro and uh, the sanctions against Russia, which were completely appropriate. You had to do the euro or it wasn't going to be meaningful. And it, you know, Russia did violate all sorts of, of norms uh, that laws, uh, expectations, name it, uh, when it invaded Ukraine. So you should be taking steps that are uh, bold and uh, consequential. But cutting off the biggest Russian banks, except from, for Gazprom Bank, uh, from the European financial system, to, you know, there, there's some narrow carve-outs, it's not full, but it clearly is much riskier now for China to be paying for its mm. uh, oil and gas from Europe and Euro. So they, you know, no shock. There's been a move towards settling that trade in Yuan. China sees the G7 sanctions and realizes that uh, insulating its economy and its ability to pay for resources, securing China's supply chains in a financial sense, will likely require greater use of the Yuan in settlement. So that it doesn't surprise me that we're seeing this debate now. It is a natural consequence to really significant sanctions. Sanctions that, in effect, forced Russia 
to move off the euro to dominate its uh, global trade. Uh, that showed that the euro is not a full substitute for the dollar in most purposes. I think it's also shown that there are limits to what you can do in yuan. Uh, it was striking to me that the Indians and Russians have spent a lot of time discussing how they're going to uh, settle the now quite large oil trade between India and Russia. And, you know, India doesn't like the yuan. They don't have the best relationship with China. So they weren't really talking about yuan. They wanted to pay in rupee. Uh, but the Russians didn't want to build up a big rupee balance because that, you know, it isn't a global currency. The only place you can really use rupee is to buy in India to buy Indian goods. They wanted something that was more global. So they have ended up relying still on the dollar, weirdly, and on uh, the Emirati Durham, uh, which is pegged to the dollar. Um, <laughs> I, didn't realize, I didn't realize this element. It's dollars yeah, so it's, it's, it's just been this, uh, 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 yes, there's been a shift. Uh, Russia and China are no longer trading with each other in uh, a currency from the rival bloc, or dollars, euros, or yen. Uh, but there's also been big limits on how far Russia's been able to go in moving its trade to pure yuan settlement or pure settlement in more sanctions remote currencies. And, you know, it, it is funny to me that, you know, the GCC countries uh, – uh, end up acting as financial hubs, and you denominate trade uh, yeah. <laughs> in their currency when, you know, that is a dollar just uh, guaranteed uh, by their central bank. They should trade in Tether. It would be, it would <laughs> yeah, be. Is that your world, Joe? It's not mine. Uh, <laughs> you know, actually, I want to go back to something we were talking about, um, you know, or you you brought up with China and the sort of like the uh, the strides that they've made on some of this advanced manufacturing. I don't remember what, you know, we've talked to several times over the years. I know that um, one, at least in one of those conversations, we talked about the failure of China's um, uh, uh passenger plane industry or to build up a competitor to Boeing and Airbus. And I believe in 2023, that's still basically the case, that they have not made much progress in that area. And then, of course, there's the semiconductors and obviously lots of sanctions and efforts to constrain China's ability to make advanced uh, chips on its own. Do you, What is like going on there? Like you know, I, This question is kind of on my mind because I was rereading a transcript uh, of an episode we recently did with Dan Wong. But what you know? Do you see like in some of these like very like difficult, complex um, industries like uh, uh, passenger uh, jet? Like, is there a change in the trajectory there? I'm hesitating because I'm I'm honestly not sure. I mean, the the C nine one nine has taken forever, but it is now in service. Uh, China can't build very many of them. Uh, I don't think there's yet data on their operational and fuel efficiency that will. Uh, show how close they are to uh, mapping to the 320, the 737, their main main competitors. I mean, I think that actually the biggest change, and this is not what is anyone on anyone's mind, uh, has not been the C919, which has been slow. I mean, it, for all of China's success in electric vehicles, uh, they've done something amazing in electric vehicles, and they've lagged expectations on aircraft. And aircraft are I guess harder. China didn't have as uh, well developed a supply chain. Uh, the safety concerns are bigger, but the biggest shock has been that Boeing's done a made a series of major errors, uh, and so independent of the success of the C nine one nine, the seven thirty seven has essentially been frozen out of the 
the Chinese market. Um, the safety concerns hmm. after the the Max has been hard to just hasn't come back. Uh, and then obviously it's an area where uh, Chinese orders for new 737s are a bit of a geopolitical hostage, and there just haven't been any after the trade war. May facilitated by the fact that Boeing, you know, the Max crashes provided. Uh, ample opportunity for the C919 to show that it could be a safer alternative to Boeing, which no one would have considered possible. Uh, but it also highlighted that the biggest risk that the C919 faces is that it crashes. So I think it's made the Chinese a little bit more mm. uh, more conservative. Uh, but it is there is there is evolution there. Right now, the evolution is mostly Boeing own goals, giving Airbus uh, a big advantage and giving Airbus an opportunity, which is right now only limited by uh, Airbus's capacity to scale up production. C919, it will be a marginal player for a while. China doesn't have the capacity to produce that many, uh, but uh, maybe 10 or 20 years down the road, there will be uh, enough capacity for that, you know, for China to have moved not only into the the front of the EV transportation sector, but also to be making inroads in aviation. Uh, you know, ch on chips, I have a, you know, China is not at the cutting edge. Uh, there are enormous sanctions to keep China from the cutting edge. There are still, China still produces a lot of lagging edge chips, and those chips play big roles in a lot of supply chains. So vulnerability from China is not limited to Chinese production capacity and cutting edge. Um, and I think it'll be interesting to see if, uh, some of these Chinese subsidies uh, uh, do generate uh, enough capacity on some of the lagging edge chips that the lagging edge chips are are cheap and a combination of lagging chips put together can produce an effective substitute for some of the cutting edge chips. Mm -hmm. So it's, it's complex, but clearly, uh, you know, uh, when China decided it wanted to catch the technological frontier in semiconductors, that caught the United States' attention. And one of the things the U.S. discovered was that it was no longer at the cutting edge of semiconductor manufacturing, hmm. not because of China, but because Intel was lagging uh, uh, TSMC and Samsung. And I, it seems obvious to me that until the U.S. is comfortable that it is back at the cutting edge, there's going to be some reluctance to allow China to move ahead too fast, in part because there are. Uh, there are uh, military applications that um, that are real, so it it's it's become that is one place where parts of global trade have become hostages to the to a geopolitical settlement. Could I ask you about something that Karthik Sankaran brought up on a recent episode, which is basically uh, he mentioned that none of the Belt and Road debt that various countries owe to China is actually denominated in UN, but all of it's in dollars. Why is that? Because that would have seemed to be, you know, an obvious one for, for China to try to do, assuming, you know, that it wants a greater role for the UN in the system. I, uh, I don't have a, a full answer. I, I find it a mystery. Um, I find it a puzzle. Uh, I have a, a set of theories, uh, but they're uh, contingent on uh, getting confirmation from actual Chinese sources. Uh, but my, I mean, it does, it would have made sense to have the Belt and Road in Yuan because there was a whole push for uh, RMB internationalization at the time. Right. It, 
it 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 is strange that when you go into the uh, sometimes secret loan docs, you discover they're all uh, they're all not only in dollars, they're LIBOR linkers with a spread, and they typically uh, amortize after five years. There's a certain standard structure to them, uh, and you know the fact that they're LIBOR linkers uh, actually really now matters because LIBOR is quite uh, you know U.S. short-term rates have have gone up a lot. Uh, why in dollars? I presume because at the origin, this was an effort to recycle China's uh, dollar surplus, its trade surplus, and to use dollars in a way that didn't add to the formal reported reserves of China's central bank. Uh, we know that was the case in some of the early uh, uh, first steps in the Belt and Road. There was something called an entrusted loan, which was sa- uh, money from China's foreign exchange reserves that was entrusted with XM or CDB, and they would lend it out and just get a spread. They would provide a service to uh, SAFE, the holder of the reserves, without necessarily having it 100% on their balance sheet. So it was clearly in dollars because it was a dollar. They had lent, they'd taken a dollar from SAFE, and they lent out that dollar, and they needed to get repaid in dollars. Uh, a lot of those entrusted loans were converted into capital, and to some degree, the money trails gotten a little... Uh, faint, a little harder to follow. But I think a lot of the funding for XM and CDB coming from various internal funds, some of which have support from China's reserves, uh, probably CDB gets some swaps from someone in China, Bank of China, PBOC would be the logical ones, in dollars. So if you're taking in dollars, you got to lend out dollars. And so it becomes uh, necessary in order to recycle China's uh, global surplus. You know, Chinese reserves have been flat roughly since 2016, so seven-ish years. Uh, during that period, the net foreign asset position of both the state commercial banks and the policy banks has probably gone up by $1.5 trillion. So you're, you're, if you're recycling a big surplus, someone in the economy uh, has to be using up some of the dollars you generate and, and lending them out, and that that mechanism of recycling in complex ways seems to have included the policy banks and the Belt and Road loans. That is the best explanation I can come up with. But it is it is a mystery. And you would think that China would have made more of an effort, not just to use the yuan to settle bilateral trade, to make that trade a bit removed from sanctions, but have would have made an effort to kind of make the yuan into a uh, uh, global... Uh, currency of denomination for debt contracts. And the easiest way would be to say that countries that wanted to borrow money from China needed to borrow in yuan. But that didn't happen. And I have one last question for me. So the last time we had you on, Tracy mentioned it was April 2020. And we were specifically talking then about the engulfing crisis that uh, emerging markets were facing. First, obviously, just the pure like the econ shock due to everything shutting down with uh, uh, the pandemic, but then numerous things on top of that, including the inflation and the commodity surge, et cetera. Within the China context, I know this is not something I follow closely, but I know that like China and the rest of the world, the IMF, et cetera, have not been on the same page with respect to uh, restructuring or forgiving or lessening in some way the EM debt burden. Can you explain just like what we should understand about like that gap and where those talks are? I can try, although that's (laughs) uh, probably a whole episode. Okay. Um, uh, Look, uh, 
uh, I guess, you know, there's a question of terminology. Most of the big emerging markets are in pretty solid financial shape. India, Brazil, Mexico, Indonesia, right. nothing to worry about. Uh, there's a set of, uh, of, of what I would consider as emerging markets or some at the cutting edge of what are called frontier markets that are in a bit of trouble. Turkey, Egypt, neither has been a big recipient of Chinese credit. Okay. Uh, they have different issues. Uh, both have been recipients of Gulf bailout money. Uh, some of the Saudi surplus that didn't go to Messi and Ronaldo uh, did go to Egypt and Turkey, uh, to Erdogan and others, uh, Erdogan and Sisi. Uh, and then Pakistan, which has been a big recipient of Chinese money. So the, the current debate isn't around some of the bigger, more systemically important emerging economies. It's around some of the smaller uh, economies, frontier markets that both borrowed heavily from China and borrowed from the bond market. And the basic difficulty is that we these countries can't pay. Uh, they've, in most cases, stopped paying. Sri Lanka, Ghana, uh, yeah. Zambia have stopped paying. There clearly needs to be a restructuring. And the Chinese and, to some degree, the bond mark, bond investors haven't entirely accepted the IMF's judgment on the amount of debt relief that is needed. There is no need consistent with China's preferences for China to write down the face value of their loans. But there probably is a need in some of the specific cases for XM and CDB to accept a very concessional interest rate. And there just isn't a model whereby they have, un with scrutiny, with uh, visibility to other creditors and to other borrowers, accepted obviously concessional interest rates on what they view as originally commercial loans. So that that is the core impasse. That impasse, because China, because official creditors have a role to play in improving IMF lending, has meant that the it has been difficult for the IMF to lend after a country defaults. And because traditionally... Uh, the restructuring of bilateral official credits precedes bond restructurings. The bond restructurings have been held up. So for a set of low, lower middle income countries, they've fallen into default. The number of countries in default keeps growing and there aren't any exits through restructurings. So there's hope maybe that either in Sri Lanka or Zambia or Ghana, someone will come up with a model hmm. uh, for restructuring the XM and CDB loans. And like people talk about China, but the bulk of the loans are from those two institutions. Got it. Mm. Um, and you'll find a model, a model that works, and then you can kind of move on. But right now, you know, the Chinese have been contesting every technical detail of the traditional restructuring process, whether that's because they feel like the restructuring process was designed by their geopolitical enemies and they are being forced to accept a diktat of how to restructure debts or whether because they're just stalling because their banks aren't willing to take losses. We don't know. All right. Well, Brad, um, I feel like we could throw out um, some more of the great financial mysteries of our time at you and, and so listen good. to you try to tackle them all. Um, but we're going to have to leave it there. Thank you so much for coming back on the show. It was really great to have you. Oh, thanks. Maybe next time we'll pick some narrower topics. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> we had to start this was, this, this is our jumping off This point. is what happens when you go three years without a brand. <laughs> next time we can go narrow. Joe, 
so much to pick out of that conversation. I'm kind of having a hard time focusing on just one or two things. I, I did think the point about um, de-euroization yeah. versus de-dollarization was a really interesting one. There's no one you could talk about, you could talk to, in which the conversation includes Lionel Messi, the <laughs> COMAX C919, and how uh, trade-denominated in the uh, Emirati Durham is really dollar-denominated trade in disguise and have it all be coherent. But that's why we like talking to Brett. It's true. I do think next time we need to choose one thing. Yes. Like uh, that episode we did on the Taiwanese life insurers <sighs> yeah. is still one of my all-time favorite yes. episodes. But next time we need to do a whole episode on EM debt restructuring mm-hmm. or maybe um, the structure of a similar topic, but the stru- structuring of China's belt and road liabilities, that would be interesting. And we got to do a like a really deep dive into Chinese EV exports and what it's doing to the European car man- manufacturers in particular, because that feels like mm. a, like an earthquake story, just something that I don't think was on anyone's radar a few years ago is something that could have happened. Yeah, this was a macro conversation that has led to like yes, 18 lots. different micro yes. episodes to do. All right. Um, the fuel efficiency of the CNY9. <laughs> it was not, you know, it's like where that stands versus the air, you know. I can't yeah. wait. All right. Um, shall we leave it there Let's for now? Let's leave it there. Okay. This has been another episode of the Odd Lots podcast. I'm Tracy Alloway. You can follow me on Twitter at Tracy Alloway. And I'm Joe Weisenthal. You can follow me on Twitter at The Stalwart. Follow our guest, Brad Setzer, on Twitter. He's Brad underscore Setzer. Follow our producers, Carmen Rodriguez at Carmen Armin and Dashiell Bennett at Dashbot. And check out all of the Bloomberg podcasts under the handle at podcasts. And for more Odd Lots content, go to Bloomberg.com slash Odd Lots, where we have a blog. We post transcripts, and we have a newsletter that comes out every Friday. And for more, check out our Discord. It's a really fun place to hang out and chat. People are in there 24-7 talking about all of these topics. They'll definitely be talking about this episode. Discord.gg slash Thanks for listening. It's Tracy Alloway. And Joe Weisenthal. We are the co-hosts of the Odd Lots podcast, and we want to tell you about a new podcast and video series you are not going to want to miss. The Deal, co-hosted by Yankees legend Alex Rodriguez. Every week, A-Rod and Bloomberg reporter Jason Kelly speak with big-time athletes, entertainers, and executives. Like Maria Sharapova, Michael Strahan, Derek Jeter, and more. The Deal takes you behind the scenes into the world of sports, media, and entertainment. And dives into the wins, losses, and lessons learned along the way. From Bloomberg Podcasts and Bloomberg Originals, you can listen to The Deal on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. You can also watch it on Bloomberg Television and Bloomberg Originals on YouTube.